Section 17 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Braden Gulls and Braden Crabs. If I were asked to state what I consider to be the characteristic bird of Braden, I should unhesitatingly say the gull. At no season of the year is the place absolutely free from representative members of this genus. It is to them a refuge in time of storm and stress. They repair to it on finer days to rest and sleep off the effects of too liberal a meal on the herring grounds. In times of scarcity, there is seldom a period of famine here save when the waters are ice-bound and here they come to gossip to bathe and to plan out new enterprises for the morrow the various gulls that haunt this tidal basin follow no hard and fast rules of conduct and procedure their movements being chiefly governed by the ebbing and flowing of the tides and when extra high tides cover the highest lumps, they are sometimes much inconvenienced. Usually, say, in the summer months, you will find them, the black-backed gulls and their juniors, the greys, and the common and herring gulls that frequently consort with them, the latter mostly in immature stages somnolent and idle at daybreak and remaining performing their ablutions and their toilet until the sun has peered above the housetops then some will prowl around among the prostrate grass if the tide be low in search of shore crabs and stranded fish and will hunt more assiduously for the crabs that begin to scamper about as the rising tide lifts the rack. The smaller gulls will repair to the channel and the drains. Sometimes they are noisy, at other times, more especially if there be a stirring wind, they fish silently. Later, as early autumn comes on, the black-headed species begins to muster up, the adults with their mouse-coloured hoods still perfect, the speckled plumage youngsters of the year bearing them company. They are more often noisy than quiet, and their laughing cries resound all over the flats. They delight to fly in airy troops up and down the channel when the tide is rising dipping lightly toe-deep into the flood for floating fragments and tiny fish and various crustaceans thrown out of the shrimp boats by the shrimpers from amid last night's catches. If it be low water, they prowl about by the channel sides or hunt in the lows left on the flats for living prey. It is odd to see them step into these pools, at most an inch or two deep, lift up their tails, and with heads drawn in, and looking downwards, taking stock of the shrimps and gobies left there, 
and which scuttle around seeking shelter or plunge into the soft ooze for safety now a ditch prawn then a gamorous and now again a white bait fails to evade those red mandibles those in hiding remain there but the black head has learned a trick or two and he begins literally to dance his bright red feet pattering on the mud with the speed of clockwork this is too much even for a goby's love of hiding and out it bolts to seek some other cover but is snapped up on its way it is an exceedingly pretty sight to see a large company of these dainty laridae dancing for a breakfast quite a number of greater black-backed gulls free this year of nesting duties stay with us all summer through in late autumn their numbers are increased by the arrival of wanderers down the coast who are following the inshore herring shoals and they now divide their day between Braden and the fishing grounds in fine weather great triangular flocks fly seawards to spend the night among the fishing fleet and glean up a rich repast by sharing the spoils with the often irate fishermen from whose nets they pilfer with great audacity there is a large mustering at nearly all hours of the day around the harbour mouth from october until the beginning of december these seem to me to be gulls that trouble Braden very little for when replete with dead herrings they have snatched from the breakers they will rest for hours upon the sea in a long straggling line often a mile in length and often they are seen asleep there until towards evening when they fly away northward probably to spend the night on the wells marshes returning at daybreak in low-flying flocks then too at various times of the year parties of gulls tabooing Braden, resort in the daytime to the fields and pass over to sea in the evening reversing these tactics at other periods notably in the autumn undoubtedly at intervals Braden is visited by all these various contingents in winter the blackheads are still with us and spend much of their time in the severest days flying up and down the river quite in the heart of the town picking up then a very precarious living the larger gulls also pass much of their time hunting up and down the channel glad at times to patrol the edges of the flats in search of carrion dead rats kittens mice and even larger quadrupeds are eagerly discussed when strong winds are blowing they will draw together in closely formed flocks and stand head to wind listless and cheerless until the rising tide or the calls of hunger demand some movement one is always seeing some queer incident who cares to watch these commonplace birds 
for their struggle for existence must be keen considering their numbers and what a vast amount of food they must require to feed them daily an old gunner complained to me that we should never get many wildfowl again for the gulls clear off all the feed i certainly believe them to be much more numerous since they have been afforded protection and sometimes try to estimate what weight of crabs and other food they can devour in a single day on Braden? A few gull entries from my notebook may be instructive. January the 18th, 1904. James Hur, an aged gunner who was at one time a well known puntsman, sat by my fireside this evening and discussed his reminiscences of gulls during a heavy gale in the early winter of eighteen eighty three her went to the beach for gulls and anything that might turn up the wind was blowing heavily from the east soon after he reached the beach he observed a pomatahine skewer at which he fired but missed it the next day he returned to the beach, hoping to meet with this bird again. He had barely reloaded his gun, after a shot, when a small gull came tripping by. Bringing his gun hurriedly to his left shoulder, for he shot as much left as right, he brought down the bird, the next long sweeping wave washing it to his feet. He noticed that the tail was forked, and thought it a curiosity. And as it was his practice to keep birds clean, curiosities in particular, he made a hollow in the sand above the tide mark, and laid the gull therein to cool and stiffen. Not long after came along a bosun skewer, as he called it also known as a buffin's skewer and this with a left-hand shot he killed when this was cool he wrapped the two birds in his handkerchief and made for home when trudging along by the edge of the water the skewer of yesterday came flying towards him this he also secured later in the day he took the fork tail to a local collector, who was then living at Galston, who offered him two guineas for it, honourably enough telling him, if he could get more, to do so. Her took the bird to Norwich, and left it with Stevenson, who was then too ill to see him, but who eventually sent him three guineas for it which with what he obtained for the others made him he said a good day's work this sabine's gull realized no less than eleven guineas at stevenson's sale in september eighteen eighty seven her once obtained a commission from a london millinery firm when gulls wings and plumage were in demand for the adornment of ladies heads to shoot gulls until further orders one day he killed twenty odd gulls of various species 
including one black-headed gull they called off their original offer of two and sixpence for each large gull and one shilling for every small one but sent him ten shillings for this consignment for the small gull and his trouble afterwards he sent them as many gulls as altogether brought him in twenty-five pounds his practice was to go to caister in the early morning and getting under the lee of the sandhills dig a hole and hide himself shooting the birds as they came in from the sea to go for their early morning feed on the land of course Braden was frequented at intervals in order to make up his consignments he once shot a small gull on Braden in very hard weather and waited for the tide to bring it to the edge of the rond before the bird floated within reach a grey gull stooped and snatched up the little victim and flew towards the flats with it where he immediately started to pull it in pieces and to devour it a heron equally sharp set dashed at the larger gull and attempted to share in the spoils but after a rough-and-tumble scrimmage was driven off by the original thief it was her who up the north river shot a large gull that had just come in from the sea with its breakfast snatched from the herring nets and which on falling mortally wounded disgorged no less than eleven herrings in truth an avine glutton one now and again sees a gull from whose mouth a piece of cord is depending in all probability it is kept there by a fish-hook fast in its gullet such a one remained in the neighbourhood of Braden for many weeks a gull was shot on one occasion and on going to pick it up the gunner saw what he thought to be a piece of cord hanging from its mouth on pulling it out it was found to be a rat's tail with the freshly killed rat attached to the other end of it october the twelfth nineteen o six strolling along the seashore this morning i was much interested in watching the steam drifters coming home from the fishing grounds one boat in particular caught my attention by the enormous number of gulls flying around it which through my binoculars looked like a swarm of bees buzzing round a hive although the boat was going at full speed the birds flew round and round it apparently without effort stopping at intervals to squabble for broken herrings thrown over by the fishermen who were shaking and emptying their nets as the boat sped homewards and catching up again with their companions with the greatest ease imaginable october the thirteenth nineteen o six there must have been four thousand gulls on Braden this afternoon soon after the tide fell at least three thousand were larus ridibundus the remainder were black-backed gulls and common gulls in long white rows 
showing in strong contrast to the sombre mud-flats, they reminded me of freshly built flint walls, with the chalk still adhering. The firing of a gun put to flight a veritable cloud of gulls. April the 23rd, 1906 These mixed flocks of gulls are very interesting to watch. Seldom are they all really quiet. As a rule, one or more are continually dropping into the thick of a crowd from the outside, like the odd pig round a trough, when short-spirited protests and petty squabbles take place on each occasion. All heads to wind. Wind, northwest, strong. July 1906 a sailor fell overboard from a vessel in the North Sea and drifted away unnoticed by the crew. He was an expert swimmer and managed to keep afloat, throwing off his garments as opportunity offered, in order to disencumber himself as much as possible. A flock of gulls gathered round and viciously attacked him, seriously mauling his back and it was only by great exertions on his part that they were kept at bay. His struggles at length attracted the notice of the crew of a passing ship, who promptly lowered a boat and rescued him in a very exhausted condition. His injuries were attended to, and he very soon recovered. It is most unusual for gulls to attack a living man, although a floating corpse is rarely let alone. July the 24th, 1906 Myriads of whitebait, or herring-sile, flashing about in Braden. I was much interested in the way that a group of gulls, who were eagerly feeding upon them, would drop in a bunch over a congested shoal their actions seeming to drive the fishes helplessly together, thus making them an easier prey. It is possible that the eels, which are exceedingly partial to young herrings, were harassing them below. The author provides the following footnote. Sir R. Lloyd Patterson, in The Irish Naturalist of October 1904, refers to a similar procedure under the title of plays of birds and balls of fry. Among the birds may be seen all the commoner gulls in a great variety of plumage. A number of the larger fish must make a simultaneous attack on a shoal of fry below, which are thus driven closer together and towards the surface when they are noticed by the smaller divers, who go for them in such a manner that, circling round the outer extremity of the shoal of fry, the fish composing it becomes still more closely driven into a mass. The outer portion shows at the surface, and is there exposed to the attacks of the surface-feeding gulls. The tactics of these Braden gulls seemed formed on precisely similar lines. End of footnote. 
July the 29th, 1906. Some greater black-backed gulls fishing in about a foot of water, over the flat near Jari's houseboat, wherein I stood observing them through a window. They sat with bills pointing downwards, closely watching the shore crabs dodging in and out among the zostera, and dipping at them with a queer duck-like plunge as they came within striking distance. The gulls could not dive, owing to their buoyancy, but would plunge headfirst down, sometimes rising quite a foot or more from the water to gain a greater impetus, pushing with their feet as they made this half-circular movement. It was very funny to see how flustered a gull would become when, clutching submerged grass as well as crab, he became temporarily anchored and had to let go in order to regain his breath. As soon as a crab was brought to the surface, it was crushed and immediately swallowed. The Shore Crab Most interesting little fellows are the common shore crabs, and distinguished though they be by the epithet of green, they exhibit extremes in coloration from grass-green to vivid blue, and yellowish-grey to a decided red. But for their similarity in shape, one might be forgiven for not knowing on sight that an emerald carapaced sea-sammy and one of a brick-red hue are in reality blood-relations. Ugly and spider-like, as the casual observer may pronounce the shore-crab, with, as one writer remarks, a cruel, cold, triangular, inhuman face, with eyes set wide apart, with cruel, hairy mandibles and chinless face, the whole expression being one of brutal lust, without one ray of light to illumine the dreadful countenance. It is bold, active, cunning, pugnacious, and half-swimming, half crawling, shuffles and scrambles about in search of food, not refusing the vilest carrion, and pulling down and devouring with equal relish any living creature that superior strength or strategy can waylay and master. Such victims are torn and eaten piecemeal, with a greed and evident enjoyment that borders on the ghastly. But, ghoul though it be, its very rapacity entitles it at least to our toleration, if not respect, for its mission seems to be the appropriation and destruction of the carrion which, if it were not for the crabs, would become more loathsome still. But it is no favourite of the fisherman and angler, whose nets it inconveniences by its struggles amongst the meshes, or whose lines are continually denuded of baits. Quite common sounds in the gloom of a braided night are the thud and scrunch when some irate eel-babber, fishing in silence, smashes a crab on the deck of his punt. Sometimes you may hear a muttered curse against these despoilers of his worms. 
there must be countless thousands of them shambling about on the flats when the tide is in or scuttling about chasing each other or searching for prey in the channels and drains the trawler for bait brings up his net with pecks of them kicking jostling threatening biting everything within reach the smelter draws in numbers at each haul sometimes quite a half peck of them and the babber only too well knows the slow steady pull at his bunch of worms so different from the quick electrical pluck pluck of the eels that succeed in getting a bite in before the smell of the bait has guided the crustacean to its goal as your houseboat begins to lift herself out of her muddy hollow on the incoming tide you can hear the long scratching rasp of crabs waking up to hunt upon the flood as they scamper one after the other in queer procession under her planks that's the crab follows up and discovers food more by scent than by sight i am convinced i had thrown out some herring milts and the heads of some bloaters these fell into about four or five inches of water in a few moments several crabs that had been lying in hiding were observed hurrying up without their usual cautious manoeuvrings against the tide endeavouring to outstrip each other in their race for the coveted prizes now and then one would stop like a hound losing the scent and recovering it as the moving water brought the aroma within its reach again it would shuffle along to stop a moment to threaten with outstretched pincer claws an equally eager rival i must admit there was some loathsomeness in the way the fragments were seized upon and dragged away into hiding behind the dark rough fucus that hung in festoons from the wooden stumps protecting my rond edge one august afternoon a smelter brought me a mess of eels and smelts the majority of which i cleaned for the evening meal a few of the smallest ones with several undersized flounders i threw into the shallow water near my landing stage at the edge of the rond the swirl of this gentle eddy evidently carried with it the flavour of the fishes that gleamed in the clear current or darkened the brown-grey mud with spots of a deeper brown presently one crab and then another peered out from the pendant seaweed and began scrambling out into the open two meeting as they converged upon a smelt halted seemed to judge of each other's pluck or want of it threatened and sparred then backed a few paces still with pincer claws extended daring each other to come on but others slyly passing them aroused the devil of greed and dropping differences from very selfishness the two seized a smelt between them and commenced a tug of war they were well matched for size and courage but how the rivalry would have ended i cannot say for one of them 
either more discreet or more selfish than the other, scenting, as well as seeing, another dead fish a few inches off, dashed at it and bore it away. The other, taking good care to profit by the fortunate circumstance, bolted into hiding with its prize. The smaller ones, hardly so daring, seized here and there a fish, but gave way when a more powerful fellow came upon the scene, returning to the tasty viands in a surreptitiously sort of way when the bully was observed stuffing and cramming the torn off fragments into its scissor-like working jaws. Any movement that hinted aggression was instantly challenged, but only in a half-threatening manner, with one extended upraised pincer claw, while the other was still busily and rapidly at work, wrenching and cramming. It's looked odd to see a little green crab dragging sideways to its retreat, a flounder four times its own size. It was a display of gluttony that was interesting, if unedifying. It was rare to see two crabs actually fighting, for all their skirmishing and menace. They took infinite pains to approach each other under cover, and then indulged more in the spiritless spar than an actual tussle, and their quaint grotesque pretenses at duelling ended without harm to either individual. In a quarter of an hour, all the fish had been taken to their hiding places, and the arena was once more clear, until some rather disappointed crab, eager for more, would make a sudden dash into the open to inspect a fragment of floating weed or stick, to retire again disgusted, or, if surprised at a movement on my part, to seize the soft ooze in all his claws, as one might push in the hand and close upon it and sink in a moment or two out of sight, remaining buried, all but the tips of the stalky eyes, which barely uncovered, ogled one in comparative safety. But remove the eye a moment, and then seek him again. I'll warrant you'll not easily fix upon the exact spot where he lies concealed. That's the crab has immense strength for his size, can be easily proved by letting him nip you with his pincers. I brought home a little fellow about the size of a five-shilling piece. Holding him up, I placed a tin box lid within reach of him. He immediately seized it with a pincer claw. Weight by weight, I continued dropping into it scale weights until it contained no less than five ounces. The other pincer claw was equally strong. I placed another into a small globe without a drop of water. For four days, he sulkily remained therein, wondering at his imprisonment. At the end of the time, a soft crab, or one that had recently moulted its shell, was given to him, whereupon he fell to, and made a goodly meal of it. I let him go back to the river on the fifth day, 
he was still game and quarrelsome when I threw him in. Small boys who go crabbing at the quaysides delight in wrenching off the shore crab's pincer claws. The hard-nipping creature can then be handled and played with with impunity. In most instances, a general smash-up follows on the expedition. Occasionally, the mutilated crabs are thrown into the river again to hunt and feed as best they can, which they certainly manage to do, for they will sometimes return to the baits provided by the other urchins, clinging tenaciously thereto with all their remaining legs and gnawing ravenously at them. But it is seldom you find a clawless crab on Braden, which goes to prove that they do not often fight seriously amongst themselves, and that they soon replace these lost members and make as good use of them as before. All summer long, the shore crab infests the shallows, sometimes wandering for miles up the adjacent rivers. In the colder months, it keeps to the deepest channels and is then not so actively aggressive. It is seldom that a soft crab is netted on Braden, the moulting being carried on in the cavities under the flints that are scattered here and there, behind the hanging heaps of fucus, under and among the roots of the zostera, and, undoubtedly, in the ooze itself. At certain intervals, hundreds of thousands of white chalky skeletons perfect in carapace and to claw tips, are strewn along the high water line on the walls and rons. Sometimes they are uniformly the size of a horse bean, then they average about farthing size, then a halfpenny, and so on, until the late autumn, when they run as large as half a crown. Rightly fearing danger, the crabs wisely hide during this period of weakness. I have never yet detected one casting its shell. In turn, the shore crab is himself largely preyed on. Various girls hunt most assiduously for him, smashing the carapace and killing him instantly by a nip of their powerful mandibles you will sometimes find six and seven in a row in the stomach of the eel. Codlings are often packed with them, and small examples are eagerly devoured by various shorebirds. Shore crabs taken in nets off the foreshore are invariably brighter coloured than those captured on a muddy bottom. Braden crabs are as dully hued as the mud over which they shamble. I saw an exceedingly funny incident in which a rook and a crab figured on July the 30th, 1906. The rook was foraging for his breakfast on one of the flats not many yards away from me when I was looking out of the window of Jari's houseboat, when suddenly he came across a shore crab hunting here and there for anything it might find good to eat. Hopping in a sort of self-congratulatory manner up to the crab, he was about to seize it 
when the crustacean raised itself on its claw tips and showed fight with its pincer claws the rook was taken aback and hesitated the crab taking advantage of this show of timidity and scuttling back a few inches on which the rook came at him again the menace was repeated and the bird again drew back this manoeuvre was repeated four or five times the wily crustacean getting nearer to the drain at every run the rook seemed at last to be really making up its mind to seize the crab at all hazards but he was too late for with another spurt the crab had reached the water and tumbled in the rook looked exceedingly foolish and appeared to be really comforted by the fact that no rival had seen the incident end of section 17